Welcome to Montana Market Watch Podcast with Joe Cummings at Yeri Lambros. Please tell a friend about our podcast. We keep it real, relevant, and occasionally have a few laughs. Who likes taxes? Not me. We have a great podcast today regarding the ins, outs, and tricks of the tax trade as it applies to selling your home. Gordon Campbell is a successful and veteran CPA in the Missoula real estate market. Gordon will explore and explain the baselines and techniques for realizing the most net profits on the sale of your home. Hold on to the idea of two years of ownership. More money in your pocket is a goal we all share. Gratton Funson Group will also join us for more perspectives on the market. Let's shed some light and save a tax bill or two. Hey, we're back on Missoula Market Watch podcast. Super excited for this uh, episode. We're with Gordon Campbell at Campbell and Associates. Uh, Gordon is a CPA. And we're also with um, the Gratton Funston Group. Um, they may be chipping in with highlights of what they know about the market. Um, but really today what we're talking about is tax consequences. And along the way in tax consequences and any tax planning for the sale of your home or your business, there's some things that you can do beforehand along the way and afterwards that can have pretty major uh, financial consequences for you. So uh, welcome, Gordon. I'm glad you're here. Taxes. Um, I guess let's start with personal residence. And then uh, could you tell me what's a a perfect personal residence sale and what are some of the pitfalls that you see along the way? You know, it seems like there's a lot of confusion about personal residence tax rules. Years ago, and I'm talking 20 years ago, it used to be that you could defer a gain if you rebought a house. Those rules are all gone, but I'll tell you what, people still have that ingrained in their mind. I get that question all the time. They say, oh, I got to buy another house within so much time. No, the rules are today that if you've lived in a house and owned it for two of any of the previous five years from selling a house. If you're married, you can exclude up to $500,000 of gain. And if you're single, $250,000 of gain. So, so exclusion is means, hey, there's no tax on the first $500,000 of gain. So it doesn't get any better than that. I got a big gain and I have to pay zero tax, state and federal on it. So that would be highly re- relevant now because of the appreciation rates in our market. Yes. So let's say I buy this home for, and this is a real, this is reality today. I bought this home for $250,000. It was in the lower rattlesnake. I, I, I bought it in 01. And now that home's going to sell for 750000 And I'm not married. So 250000 of that is in my pocket. If my basis is 250, right? Right. What happens to the other 250? Is that a personal gain or is that capital gains? So that's a capital gain. So, you know, normal capital gain rates are, you know, normally 15% federal, 4.9% Montana. So call it 20%. So 20% times 250, $50,000 of tax on a gain of 250. And why I say normally, there are, it's a little bit more confusing in that, and then that is with taxes, there's always exceptions. If you're a very high income earner, that federal rate can be up to 20%. 
as part of Obamacare, there was a net investment tax that said, hey, if you have investment income and the sale of a personal residence is, is an investment income, there can be an additional 3.8% uh, because you know, what's the government doing these days? Hey, we're gonna, we need to raise money. Where are we going to get it from? Oh, we're going to get it from people that earn over 250, over 400. You hear those words all the time from the government, right? So, so does that mean that a high-earning person would pay, uh, would have a, a larger tax consequence than a, a person making 75000 yes. a year? Yes, yeah, exactly right. Okay. Yep. Well, when I bought this house, Gordon, I bought it for 250. So let's say it's assuming my basis is 250. But my wife said we needed a new kitchen and I have receipts from 2008 of a $100,000 remodel. That's going to take is that going to take away that's going to up my basis, right? It's going to increase your basis and it's going to reduce your gain. So exactly. I'd be at a 150 gain now because I've got the I got the 250 exclusion. Well, and if you have a wife, you're 500. That's a good point. Yeah. So, if you have a wife, you're 500, not 250. So I was just about to get married and we were going to sell this house. Should I get married before I sell this house? Um, I not not the, the versions of <laughs> who I'm marrying, but from a tax consequence. <laughs> well, I always say, Joe, that, you know what? Marriage is a personal decision. <laughs> Taxes are a finance decision. Yeah. So, uh, But you, you know what? If, uh, if you're married when you sell that house, there's what's called an ownership test. And I'm just thinking from memory now, but I believe you would qualify for that $500,000 exclusion amount. I can check that later yeah. to just take it to the bank, but, but that's my gut feeling right off the top of my head. Uh, Mr. Funsons has a question. You know, uh, does this pertain to common law? And, you know, so common law is a legal concept that says, are you married or not, right? So uh, that happens all the time. Uh, I had a, a client this year that told me they were common law married. They actually had a ceremony, but they never sent in the license. And we had that discussion and said, well, are you married? Yes or no. And I ran their tax return, you know, both ways, married or single. And guess what? They were going to save a lot of tax if they filed single. And uh, they made the decision that they were not going to consider themselves common law because common law is, is what? Common law basically says, hey, if you hold your out, yourself out as a married couple, if you act like a married couple, you look like a married couple, yeah, you're probably a married couple, right? And so that's a subjective determination in my mind, right? I mean, normally if you get married and you file a license with the county, that's the time where, you know, it's very clear, hey, you're married, right? As of this date, common law is a little bit grayer, right? So, so that's an issue that you'd have to, you know, just think about and discuss with, you know, your team and say, hey, what's the right answer in my case, right? What... So, so married. So the the cap for a married couples five hundred, and the cap for a single person's two fifty. Yes. So, one of the things I was going to ask you about is about a reduced exclusion. So let's go back to our case study here. I buy this for two fifty. Uh, the Funston Gratton Group can sell, or the Gratton Funston Group can sell it for seven fifty. 
but I bought it. I lived in it. And then I got a job over in um, I got a job over in the oil field, so I rented it out for a, a number of years. And then I got a job back in Missoula. Moved my tenant out, and I moved back in it. So I'm not wholly in my personal residence all the time. How does that work? Well, so there's a couple of questions in there, Joe. So let me just take them, you know. Uh one at a time. So there's what's called a reduced exclusion. So let's just think about that for a minute. So let's use the example, you buy a house for, for 250 and uh, you live in it for one year, not the two out of five years, mm -hmm. right? And then you sell it because, oh, you got to move to the oil fields to get a job. And so there's a concept that says when you do that, you qualify for a reduced exclusion and how that reduced exclusion works. Well, I didn't live in it for two out of five years. I lived in it for one year. So half, you know, one is 50% of two years. So in that situation, I would qualify for an exclusion of half of the amounts. You know, if I'm married, instead of being 500, it's 250 if I'm single. Half of 250 is 125, so it's a way for, oh, even if I don't live in it for one or two out of five years, I can still get some of the exclusion. And, you know, if you've only lived in it for a year, maybe maybe half, and you're married, half of 500 is 250. Maybe that covers the gain and you're, you're home free and you can exclude all the gain. The other thing about that is, so that applies when there's a job change, you know, so, so there's rules that say, oh, if it's because of a job change, you qualify for that. There's other rules that say, oh, and if it's a health-related item, oh, I live in Montana, but my doctor said because of my asthma, I got to live in Arizona. That qualifies. And then there's a vague category that says an unforeseen circumstance. So what is an unforeseen circumstance? And it says an unforeseen circumstance is something that wasn't anticipated. Oh, I bought a, I bought a two bedroom house and I've got a child and then I have triplets and I need, I need a bigger house. Well, that's kind of an unforeseen circumstance or other unforeseen circumstances. Oh, I got married and my new wife has five kids. Well, that's unforeseen. And to go a little bit farther, here are some things that the tax court has said are unforeseen circumstances. Excessive airport noise. I moved into a house and it was too loud. Or uh, moved away from a school district where children were being harassed or bullied. That was an unforeseen circumstance. So I, when we talk about these questions with taxpayers, I always say, well, gee, that's kind of a vague Criteria, an unforeseen circumstance. Well, a lot of things happen in life that are unforeseen. And if the reason for the move is some unforeseen circumstance, sometimes we can, you know, we can get some amount of that exclusion. So that's that, that whole issue of, oh, I didn't do it for two years. So your next question was, okay, what happens if I, you know, I have a personal residence and I rent it for two years and then I sell it. Well, so, you know, let's say I lived in it for three years, I rent it for two years, and then I sell it. Well, have I lived in it any of the previous two years out of the last five years from the date of sale? And the answer in that example is yes, I lived in it three years, I rented it for two years, so I did, you know, I actually lived in it three out of the last five years. Can so is it the most, it's the most recent window of ownership. So I owned it for 20 years, and it's our subject property at 250. Um, I, live, I, I bought it, 
I, I rented, I rented it, I've owned it for 15 years. I rented it for 13 years and then I moved in for two years and I get my full exemption. No. Okay. And, and, the re- and the reason is, is that there are a set of rules that says, hey, if you convert a personal residence to a rental property and you have to look at the period of non-qualified use. Mm-hmm. So if there's a long period of time, uh, and this is in the, these rules, you only look at the time after 2008. Okay. That, and okay. that's, that's okay. just a date. That's okay. a line in the sand. So okay. you only look at the time after 2008. So you look at that time period and if you say, oh, I lived in it for 10 years through 18 and then I lived in it for, or I rented it for five years and then I moved back into it for two years. Well, so then you've got that total number of years and you would have to pick up the gain on the rental portion the number of years of the total years after 2008 to figure out what your taxable gain is. So you would be able to exclude some of it, but not 100% of it. And that's in that scenario that you gave me. Okay, then let's then, then work out another scenario. I, I bought this house, and this could happen, I bought this house three years ago. And, uh, or let's say I bought this house a year ago. This is possible. I've got a big gain in a year if you bought it right. Okay. And my kid starts getting bullied at the school district. And I'm just, I got to move. I'm going to buy something else. Now can I start saying, uh, I've only lived in it a year, but it's an unforeseen circumstance. Now can I realize the full tax savings on it? Uh, the, the full tax savings. And tell me what the gain is. The gain's, say it's, the, the gain's 300. 300,000. Mm-hmm. And so if you are married, so you lived in it a year. I'm single. Oh, you're single. Okay, Still, yeah. so you lived in it one year of the two-year time period that mm-hmm. you have to qualify. So you've lived in it for fifty percent of the time. So fifty percent of two fifty, the exclusion amount for a single person, would be the excluded amount. So one twenty-five in that example. But I'm only reason I'm moving is an unforeseen circumstance. That unforeseen circumstance does that gain me any further exclusion? No, no. Okay. It just gives you that percent. So that allows you to get, you know, that's if you don't live in it for the full two out of five years, right? You've lived in mm-hmm. it one out, of, one out of five years, one divided by the required amount of two years is 50%. Mm-hmm. 50% of the gain could be excluded. So what's... That's 50% up of your amount, 250. Yeah. So 125 in that example. So what, it, I guess just then basics. If I bought a home and I lived in it for two years and I sell it, do I get the full tax savings? Yes, you. If you're single, you get to exclude 250. If you're married, you get to exclude 500. If your gain is a million, well, five, you know. And if you're single, 250 mm-hmm. of it would be excluded. The other 750 would be taxable. Okay. So what? Um... Uh, so even less than a year. Like real world example, I had a client sold him a house uh, in September of last year. Uh, guy had a job change, um, moved away. We just closed on it. So that was seven months. Is that, I mean, that's even less than a year. So then is it that, that proportion? So seven months divided by, by 24, 24 months, that percent gotcha, that's times, he, is he married or single? Married. So then that percent times 500,000, that would be the maximum that he could exclude. Gotcha. And, you know. 
you know, would think that would probably yeah. cover it because 500,000 is a big number, yeah. right? Um, okay, so two years is our number. That's, that's the clean one. And then we work back from there based on use. Um, could you tell me one of your nightmare stories in this vein of reasoning where I assume in your business, I was assuming in accounting like real estate, you, hey guys, we really should do this. Then your client doesn't do it. And then there's some consequence either at the end of the transaction for us to be at the end of the transaction or the transaction didn't go or we didn't write an offer. Like, could you tell me a story of a client came to you and said, they're going to sell their house. They disconnect. They close it, and you're like, "Oh, guys, we should have done X, Y, Z." Like, where, where do the where do the wheels fall off? Well, you know what? I guess I can't think of any nightmare stories because you know what? We're usually, you know, we're dealing with the taxes after the transactions happen. Okay. You know, and and we do planning up until that time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so take for example, if a person, you know, was very close to the two year time period, we always say, hey, you know what, why not wait till two years and a day? So for sure you get the maximum exclusion amount, right? And that's from when it closes? Yeah, yeah, okay. from when it closes. So, so you know, but, but even in that situation, and then you wouldn't have to worry about, oh, well, uh, I, do I have an unforeseen circumstance? Well, if you're less than two years, you you better have an unforeseen circumstance or else you don't qualify for any gain deferral, right? So, you know, in that case, but, you know, most people understand that two out of five year rule. And if they talk to their accountant and say, hey, let's, you know, talk about, hey, what's the planning uh, procedures that we, what are the important dates? What are the important numbers? Uh, but but I, I guess I don't really have any super ugly transactions where, you know, I go, oh, gee, if we would have done this, we would have had a different outcome. Because again, you know, we're looking at the transaction after after it happens, and normally we can exclude a big gain, right? You know. So for us as as agents, timing up a listing and when a close date is could be really important because they might add a sixty days, you know, the fifty nine possession rule, and let's add the sixty days. Like the thing closed at two years. Um, so I guess my next question is this, and we talk about this a little bit, and it's in my notes to ask you. So I'm gonna to go to a different case study. So in my in my 20s, I bought, uh, no, in my 60s, I bought five $250,000 houses, okay? And I bought five $250,000 houses, and I was thinking about selling them, but all I'm gonna do if I sell them is, is pass that on to my kids. So all of a sudden, and I know what my basis is, I die, okay? And now I'm passing the property onto the kids. Can you talk a little bit about step-up basis at death and how does that apply? Because we see that in the, what we see is, what we see is, well, I'm gonna pass this money on. It's better for my kids to sell it after I die because there's a step-up, right? Then if I'll pass properties on, then they'll sell them, they'll sell it because I'll have a higher ba a basis. Is that, am I thinking of that right? Exactly right. So, so the concept is, is that when a person dies, you get your cost gets stepped up to fair market value at date of death. And so we are always asking people like you to, you know, do you need an appraisal of that? And, mm -hmm. you know, lawyers might say, oh yeah, if it's a super important transaction, if the numbers are super big, yes. 
spend the money, get an appraisal. But lots of times in real life, what happens, oh, we're selling the house now, there's a realtor involved, the realtor knows values, and we ask the client to say, hey, you know that realtor you're working with, he knows the value, you're selling it right now, dad died six months ago, get a letter from that realtor to give you an estimate of what that fair market value was at specifically on the date of death, right? I mean, we know what it is today when we sell it, but six months ago, what was it? And, you know, realtors are smart people. They understand value. They've got a lot of experience. Uh, and so do you need to have an appraisal? I don't believe you do. So we, we like to see a letter from the realtor saying, hey, this is my opinion of what fair market value is. And that gives us a number to hang our hat on, so to speak, right? We've got something written from a third party that tells us what the real fair market value was, and then we typically use that. And so just to, in your example, Joe, you, you know, dad dies, he's got property that's worth a million dollars, he paid 200000 for it. If he was to sell it, there'd be a big, big gain. Mm -hmm. But now uh, kids inherit it at... Uh, fair market value at date of death, their cost is a million dollars on that property. So if they sell it the next day after dad dies for the million dollars, zero gain or loss, right? And and go one step farther. Let's say they don't sell it. And it's let's say it's a rental property. And so what do they get to do now? Oh, they get to depreciate that higher amount, that million dollars, you know, and it's not the full million dollars. You got to pull out the land, let's say the land's 200,000 and the building is 800,000. Now they've got this big fat depreciation deduction that is gonna offset rental income going forward in the future, yeah. right? So, I mean, that's a great place to be, right? So let's, so let's add one more into it. So I got all these rental, and I think as part of, you know, with, with legacy rental portfolios, wanting to, wanting to pass on the property rather than sell it and pass on the money for those reasons. So let's say I'm married, and I want to I want to make my tax consequence to my to my kids, you know, the best scenario for them. My my wife survives me. Does she get the step up when I die? And so, uh, what was the ownership of the property when you died? Was it jointly held between you and your spouse? Uh, let's. There's two answers to that. Let's work the first one. It was okay. So then the step up would be. 50% because when when you die you owned 50% yep. of the property so 50% of the property would get stepped up to fair market value spouse's basis on her 50% she already owned as a joint owner mm -hmm. in that property is still the same and so in that case 50% of the property would get stepped up if you owned it 100% yourself and your wife wasn't an owner of that property and you died then it would be 100% step up that's an llc i own it i own this llc she owns this llc with her own properties i die she inherits it but she inherits it at a at a stepped up basis 100% yeah if you're oh, the, wow. if you're the single owner of that llc Yep, she would get a hundred percent step up in basis. Okay. So here's a little wrinkle that that, and this just happened. Uh, this specific case happened this year. I had a person who um, husband died in 2021. Uh, spouse, the wife, um, she's and these folks are elderly folks. And so she makes a decision to sell the house in 2022. Well, in 2021, they were 
married filing joint in 2022. She's single. There is, uh, and they bought this house in 1958 for like $8,000. <laughs> so, so her basis, so, so in talking about this transaction with her, and they sell the house for 500000 or some number like that, and they go, well, it was jointly owned, so she gets a step up in basis on 50% mm-hmm. of uh, the amount that husband owned when he died, but her basis was still super low. But there's a rule that says, hey, if you sell, if a spouse sells a property within two years of the date of death of the other spouse, then now they don't qualify for the single exclusion amount of 250 she qualifies for the joint exclusion well, of 250 difference. or 500,000 yes and and she was in that category she had a gain of like 300 and some thousand dollars and originally you know well we were thinking oh well she's going to have a little bit of tax mm-hmm. to pay but then this special we researched this specifically and no she qualifies for the full 500 so she sells the house she gets a pile of cash and all of it is excluded. She shares zero of it with the state and federal government. So, in a, it, so let's, let's I'll kind of drop it down for our readers. You need to live in a property for two years, and in the in that property in personal use for two years, your exclusion is two hundred fifty thousand if you're single. It's five hundred thousand if you're married. If along the way your spouse dies, you can still have that 500 if you close the transaction within two years of, of either spouse's death. Date of death, yes. And that's a big deal. Yes, that is a big because deal. Because if you were thinking about it, I mean, I'm not taking away the grieving process of losing a spouse, God forbid, but your timing in that could have pretty substantial, um, pretty substantial uh, tax consequences. Yes, and it's a, you know, it's a fairly common transaction, you know, husband and wife live in the same house for, you know, 35 years, one of them dies, and then the other spouse says, well, I don't need this big house anymore, I'm going to downsize, I'm going to get a condo, I'm going to move closer to the grandkids, Mm -hmm. whatever, right? And so it is a fairly common scenario that a lot of people don't know about that specific rule, so that's a good one to put in the back of your memory banks and just know that it's there so you can, you know, let people know that it exists because a lot of people don't know that that exists. Um, so I'm going to, sh- so c- kind of boiled it down two years in her mind, 250 or 500 in her mind, a step up basis. If you're, if you're in rental portfolio, um, understanding what, what that does. And then also two year rule after, um, death of a spouse. So putting apart that, and I've got a note here to ask you about real estate professional and passive loss rules. So what, what is that? So, so in 1986, the government came out with what's called the passive loss rules. And the passive loss rules say if you have a passive loss and the rental of real estate by definition is passive. And so that means, oh, I own a fourplex and I generate a loss of $10,000. So the there's a there's a number of rules here, but but here's here it is in a nutshell. The uh, if your income is less than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and you have this ten thousand uh, dollar loss from the uh, the rental of a fourplex, and you actively participate in the rental, which means you know you 
you know, you decide things. You might have a property manager, but you work with the property manager. You determine what rents are. You decide when to, you know, re-roof the roof, et cetera. Then you get to ex you get to write off that ten thousand dollar loss because if you're under one fifty, you can you can write off up to twenty five thousand dollars of passive losses. If you're over, uh, if you're over one fifty, you can't. But if you are considered a real estate professional, and what's a real estate professional? A real estate professional is somebody realtors or real estate professionals, appraisers, builders, developers, property managers, they by definition are real estate professionals. The rules then say is, well, those these other rules that I said where you're limited to $25,000 a year, they don't apply to you. And why is that? Because the concept is, is that, hey, I'm, I'm a realtor or I'm a builder. I make my my living in the real estate world and part of that real estate world might be for me is hey i own some rental property and so the government kind of says well you know this is really the ordinary thing you do to make a living so we're going to let you deduct those rental losses where if you're a you know you're an orthopedic surgeon that has a fourplex hey you're not a real estate professional and we're not going to let you deduct those losses currently, right? Mm -hmm. And if and if and if you're that orthopedic surgeon that makes over 150 and you can't and you have a loss on a fourplex, you can't write that off currently. It's not lost, it's a suspended passive loss. When do you get that loss? Well, you'll get that loss if your income drops below 100 and why I say 100 uh, there's a phase-out period between 100 and 150. If you're under 100, you can always deduct a passive loss. If you're over 150, you can't. And if you're between 100 and 150, so let's say you're exactly 125, well, you could deduct up to 50% of 25,000, 12,5. So the rules get a little kind of cumbersome a little bit. But, but, but the uh, the bottom line is is that so when does that orthopedic surgeon get to deduct that passive loss if his income ever drops below a hundred or hundred and fifty, or if he has a passive income that he can offset his passive loss against? So if he has another fourplex yeah. and it earns a positive ten thousand dollars, oh that ten thousand dollar loss would absorb that ten thousand dollar profit or if he sells the property. So someday that passive loss is gonna get triggered, but you know it's kinda of nice if you have a loss that you can save income taxes in this year, right? Saves me taxes this year. Lots of times the name of the game in taxes is that, hey, I wanna save, save tax dollars this year, I'll worry about next year, mm -hmm. next year, right? And because the rules may change, I may have different scenarios, et cetera. Okay. Um... So I guess, go ahead, uh, Chris. Sorry, just to clarify that. So if, if you're a real estate professional, you can write off every loss. Every rental passive loss, passive. yes. So you could have a, a $50,000 rental loss if you had a loss that big. Yes, you could use that and it would offset your other income from being a realtor, your other income from interest or dividends or whatever. And that's irregardless of the 150 mark? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So that's the real estate profession rule. And, and one other little wrinkle that I just wanted to, there's, there's another little wrinkle when it comes to personal residence. And it's 
and it's the adjacent land rule. So let's use this as an example. You know, you got a place on the edge of town and it's, uh, it's uh, 20 acres and it's your personal residence on and five acres and then there's three other lots that are five acres. And so there's a rule that says, hey, if I sell adjacent land to my personal residence and adjacent means I share a border with it and it can be across a road, being across a road is also adjacent by definition. But if I sell my personal residence, let's say I sell my residence today and a year late, and I exclude the gain on that, and then I sell a piece of land six months down the road, one of these other five acre pieces, I can consider that that was is part of my personal residence and the the exclusion rules can apply to that five acre piece of property. I can't go over the 500 in total, but I can consider that part of my personal residence. So there's a, there's a four year window and the rules say, hey, if I sell adjacent land two years before I sell my personal residence or two years after I sell my personal residence, I can consider that that land sale was part of my personal residence. And so, well, if you sell land, two years before, well, you, what do you do? You say, well, I, we've got a $50,000 gain on this, on this land sale. You'd pick that up and you'd pay tax on it. And then two years in the future, you'd say, oh, now I sold my personal residence and I'm gonna exclude the gain on that. And let's say that's 200,000, but now what can we do? We can go back two years ago and file an amended tax return and say, hey, you know that $50,000 we picked up two years ago? That was part of a personal residence sale under these rules and whatever tax I paid, and let's say it was 15% of, of uh, you know, uh, 50,000 in my example, I could go back and get 7,500 back from the Fed and 5% back from the state of Montana. So that's kind of a rule that's just worth knowing is out there. It's, and you have to own that or no? Yes. You have to own the adjacent property? Yes, because you can't sell it unless you own it. Gotcha. That was a dumb well, like nice. as a realtor, as a I'm, th I'm thinking you just identified yourself as a realtor. <laughs> I'm just thinking because me and Chris live right next door to each other, so I'm saying if I sold and it's only bare land, uh, it's adjacent property. Yeah, and it would only because what be, if he sold his his house and it would only be bare land because if you, no, because that two different situations, right? Your yes. deal is your deal, Chris's deal is his deal, so it's not different owners it's the same owner gotcha. right yeah so let, me, so let me work that out so i'm going to go out and i'm going to buy 20 acres in frenchtown and so i buy i can buy buy me 20 acres and i'm like you know what honey well, let's subdivide this and so we say we're going to keep the five acres for our house and you live there i live there so my personal residence and then i pop a five a five and a five off so i'm my 20s now five i own all the parcels okay and um, we decide, you know what, we're going we're gonna to sell our house, but I'm going to keep the lots because maybe we're going to build something later. My window's four years where I can still... Two years before the sale of the house, two years after the sale okay, of the so, house. So really, so when I'm getting close to that two years and I keep getting calls from uh, the Grattan Funson group, we should list your land, we should list your land really honey we need to get this thing sold in two years because we got a big tax consequence big tax consequence because the time's ticking when we sell our house so you know what let's sell these adjoining parcels let's get this thing closed in two years 
I can still have that married exclusion of 500,000 to diminish my tax on it. Yes. If I go, if I, we sell the house and then we mess around and keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. Now I'm going to sell those lots 10 years from now and I'm going to have a di different tax consequences. I can't. There's no exclusion in that case, 10 years later. Capital gains. Yes. Capital gains. You're going to roughly pay 15% federal, 5% state okay. in general. Um, well, excellent. So uh, I guess, you know, thank you so much for coming in here today. There's more to talk about. We should do this again. I mean, we, there's more questions that all of us have uh, on this. Just to recap for the uh, listeners, um, obviously, uh, Gordon is extremely bright. Um, he's an asset um, that we definitely would refer our clients to, to um, talk about these things. Kind of bullet points for listeners are two years of, a, of living in the residence. Once you get past that two years, you can either realize a 250 as a single tax filer um, to, to be non-taxable gains, 500,000 as, um, 500, as a married couple. If it's some version of ownership, there's going to be a percentage of that. Maybe it was a rental percentage of it or maybe a uh, primary residence. Um, there's also discussions if anybody's a rental portfolio um, thinking about selling some things. And I'm not wishing you near death, but death does have some consequences for you and your spouse um, to think about on passing on assets to um, your family. And then also, um, I think one of the other points from a real estate standpoint is and adjoining parcels, if you're selling parts of an existing asset that you own the lots to, there's a timetable on that that I think um, you know Gordon could counsel you on, um, Grant Funson Group could counsel, counsel you on. I mean, that's just great stuff, Gordon. Um, I really appreciate you coming in here today. Thanks again, uh, Grant Funson Group, and we should do this again. Thanks, guys. Hey, no problem, and you know what? Just something to wet your whistle for the next time. Another big topic, VRBOs, right, as you know, Huge. is a big deal, and there's tax issues there. Also, the like-kind issue. So maybe those are two topics for next time. Absolutely. Let's do it again. Okay. Enjoyed talking with okay. you guys, and thanks for coming in. I enjoyed it too. Thanks, guys. Yep.